Hey everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I am also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by the CBG Trails app, which is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. Scott Jurek, one of the greatest trail runners of all time, called his attempt to break Jennifer Farr Davis's FKT, that's fastest known time, for hiking the Appalachian Trail, the hardest thing he'd ever done. And yet, hiking and through hiking often isn't given the credit it deserves, either as being a monumental test of endurance or, on the other hand, as being a more accessible and less intimidating way to get more people outdoors. So I wanted to talk to Jennifer Farr Davis about the differences and divides between hiking culture and trail running culture, why and how she works to break down barriers and get more people outside, what she's learned about befriending adversity, harnessing the power of failure, and the growing importance of connecting with nature, and more. And in some ways, it's pretty remarkable that my guest was even willing to speak to me because the first time I met her, I promptly stole two of her books right after she was nice enough to sign them for me. But after we got that situation rectified, shortly thereafter, she almost made off with my phone. She claims it was an accident, but I actually think it was a little bit more like payback. Anyway, I met Jennifer just a few weeks ago after attending a talk of hers at the Gunnison Public Library. Jennifer is an extremely accomplished athlete. She is a former National Geographic Adventurer of the Year who has covered over 14,000 miles of long distance trails on six different continents. And as mentioned above, she has held the FKT for the Appalachian Trail. And so given her background, I thought she would be the perfect person to ask about some of these questions that I've been wondering about for quite a while. Namely, this whole hiking versus running thing, or hikers versus runners, or through hikers versus ultra runners. These activities seem so similar. As we've talked about previously on this podcast, many trail runners often don't run up trails after all. So why does it seem like there is so little overlap between those who identify themselves as hikers and those who identify themselves as trail runners? Are these two communities all that different? And if so, how? And what about the similarities? And what are the things that the hiking community is doing different than the trail running community? And maybe not just different, but better. In short, I wanted to get Jennifer's take on this whole trail running versus hiking divide, learn more about these two communities, examine their relative strengths and weaknesses, and more than anything, see where these labels and categories might be useful, but also where they might be functioning as barriers. Jennifer and I also talk a bit about her really excellent book, The Pursuit of Endurance, and I highly encourage you to check it out. There are some excellent lessons and observations in the book about persistence and how to get through hard things, both on and off the trail. But in my opinion, every bit as valuable are the beautiful and incredibly interesting portraits that Jennifer presents of some wonderful and inspiring characters. Any single one of the individual chapters are worth the price of the entire book. And I absolutely loved learning for the first time about people like Warren Doyle and Scott Williamson, 
and learning a whole lot more about Scott Jurek. Finally, I would say that this is a must-buy for anyone who is curious about the Appalachian Trail and the fascinating culture surrounding the AT. And just as important, I think, this is a must-read for anyone who hasn't really ever cared about the AT or doesn't quite understand what the big deal is. So, if you fall into any of these various categories, I will bet you a beer that you are going to appreciate and enjoy this book called The Pursuit of Endurance. And so, here it is, my conversation with Jennifer Farr Davis. Jennifer, how are you today and where are you today? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm in um, Provo, Utah, and um, went for a hike yesterday and had a talk at the local library, and um, my throat is a little sore and scratchy. We're doing a lot of talks and a lot of touring, and I think my throat is is suffering a little from that. I actually met you on your book tour uh, during your stop in Gunnison, and while I don't have the best sense of how many stops the average book tour makes, yours strikes me as remarkably packed. So um, it's actually very uncommon now for authors to tour to promote books. Um, publishers don't want to fund it and there's more effective online marketing measures with the time and resources you spend in traveling. So for us, um, traveling to promote our book, it's a way that we can work from the road. My husband is actually like a, what I would call a logistics wizard. So he loves putting together these tours. He loves geography. We love seeing the country, And um, it's a way that we can work from the road, we can have an adventure, and we can spend time as a family. So for most people, I feel like it it does seem very daunting. I mean, we are on the road with a two-year-old and a six-year-old for two months, and we have over 40 events, and we're someplace new almost every night. (laughs) I I guess I should have realized this, but your book tour is basically a through-hike. Yeah. This is, we're on a through hike with hotels. That's basically what it is. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So I want to talk about some of the things in this book you're touring for. But first, can you tell us a bit about your background and your current mission and work? Well, you know, I, um, when I was 21 years old, I hiked the Appalachian Trail and it, it really transformed my life and what I wanted. And Um, I I was hoping to go out there and figure out what I wanted to do for a career. And while that didn't happen, I knew I wanted a life afterwards that was more based off experience and relationships and time spent outdoors. And uh, after a few years of doing pretty traditional jobs and, and saving up money and taking time off to go hiking, I finally realized at age 24 man, I just want to help other people get outside. Like that is how I spend my evenings and weekends with friends, teaching them how to backpack. I wonder if I could do it for a career. Um, So I started a hiking and guiding service in Asheville, North Carolina at the age of 24. And it's called Blue Ridge Hiking Company. And it's grown over the past 11 years. So now we get over 1,500 people each year out on the trails in Western North Carolina. And I still own and manage that. But then from the beginning... The other component has been speaking and writing about the outdoors and being an advocate for people to get outdoors, especially especially women and, and people who might not feel necessarily immediately included on trails. So that's sort of been my mission and passion and what I've been doing ever since. That's great. And I think it's super important for all of us to be thinking about 
who does or does not feel included in a given group. And more specifically, I've been thinking a whole lot lately about how ultra running on trails involves a lot of what people would otherwise just call hiking. And I wanted to get your take on how you view these two communities, the the hiking community and the trail running community, where you see or how you see that they overlap or differentiate themselves. Yeah, it's something I feel strongly about and I get a little snarky about it because I've, you know, had a foot in both worlds. I've been a long distance backpacker and hiker and I've also been a trail runner and, um, you know, an ultra runner for some time. And I really hate how the two communities see themselves as so different. And I notice it more within the runners. Like, they're so stuck on being runners. And every time I do a long race, I'm like, you're hiking. Like, you're hiking up that mountain. And I don't know why you don't want to call yourself a hiker. But, like, you're doing a lot of hiking out here. Um And I like to think of our, you know, um, ability to move through the mountains as just that. Like, I think at the end of the day, we're movers. And I don't think we should, like, emotionally regulate this experience or physically regulate this experience to pace and speed. Like, if you feel weak and you need to walk, then walk. And if you feel great and light and free and want to push yourself, then run. And really, I think everyone's better served to be able to do both rather than limit themselves to one category or another. And, um, you know, that was one of one of the many reasons I wanted to write um, The Pursuit of Endurance, the new book, is because I saw trail runners come to the long trail culture and to FKTs, and they kind of took it over in a really rude way without a lot of respect to past hikers who had set records or trail culture. And they were kind of like the tacky American tourists going to Europe and not really being aware of their environment and wanting to only talk their language and only pay in their currency. And so I definitely think we all have more in common. We all have more similarities um, than our differences. And I think it's important that we work together and acknowledge the other, the other paces, the other groups. And the thing I love about hiking the most, and the thing I think should help and allow runners to embrace hiking, it is the most inclusive form of movement, right? And when we're talking about getting people started and getting people outdoors and engaging in terms of conservation, like when you tell people they can walk, it makes it so much more accessible. And there's times as a runner, I haven't been able to run when I was um, pregnant or nursing or recovering from surgery, but hiking always came first. So just a big fan of like crawl, hike, run, like do it all. So I have a confession to make. I kind of thought it was strange that you self-identify as a hiker um, because frankly, you are this great athlete and you have proven to be this record-setting badass. And I guess I just thought like you are way too hardcore to just be calling yourself some hiker. And yet, Now, as I hear you talk more about your broader passion and mission to help people get outside and to make that all seem more doable and more accessible, this now makes a whole lot more sense. I love being a hiker, though. That's that's why I call myself a hiker. It's the lowest common denominator. And I hike with my kids. And it's great because I'm not out there running with my kids. They're too young for that. But like, we can still hike. And hike, by definition, is a walk in a natural setting. So why not start with what brings us together instead of what separates us? I mean, I'm, yeah, I run sometimes, but I also say 
whenever I try to run hard or push myself, I always think to myself, man, I could be hiking now. So I think at my root, I am, I am a hiker. Plus the other thing is, and your book really helped kind of crystallize this for me, backpacking and through hiking are hard as hell. Uh, the fact that Scott Jurek, I don't know, one of the most famous and most accomplished ultra runners ever, called setting the fastest known time for the AT the hardest thing he'd ever done. That kind of took me back. And then, you know, Carl Meltzer, another icon, you know, and legend in trail running, he failed to break the AT record three times. That's saying something right there. Right. Backpackers are extremely good at being uncomfortable for long periods of time in a way that ultra runners never experience. I mean, they go out there and great, you want a hundred mile race, but you're super fast. You finished in less than 20 mile, 20 hours. And then you're going to go take a shower and eat a meal and sleep in a bed. Like backpackers are out there every night in a tent, on the ground, on a foam pad. And they're just used to doing it day after day after day. And it's actually extremely entertaining for me. Like I love my trail running friends. But man, if you throw a pack on them or tell them they have to camp out, they like melt. Like these are some of the toughest people I know. And they become like such pansies when you put everything they need for a camp out in a pack on their back. Like they just teeter totter down the trail. They're so uncomfortable with that weight or level of discomfort in so many cases that it just shows that, um, you know, there is there is this grit and this resiliency to doing a through hike, which is very different. It's a different type of toughness and um, discomfort, and it's a different mentality than the longest trail races out there. So um, I'm glad that people see the example of, of Scott and Carl struggling, you know, really having a hard time because I think it, it brings a lot of um, positive light to the other people who are relatively unknown, who have done the same thing or even better than Carl and Scott and have, you know, received very little attention for it. Yeah. And I think your career is a real testament to the fact that endurance comes in many different forms and that regardless of whether a person is running or hiking or whatever, there's a lot to be learned from going outside and just moving for as long as you can. Yeah. But at the end of the day, too, I mean, you know, one thing I really appreciate about my journey is when I was more active and competing and more athletic, like I remember having this mindset of, oh, well, if I can't go run five miles, why would I go for a run? Like, it's not even worth it, you know? And I, just looking back to me, that feels so, you know, arrogant and insensitive. And kids are so great about grounding you and humbling you and also limiting your time to where now, if I can go run like one or two miles, there's such value in that, not just in the form of movement or exercise, but just clearing my head and time away and using my body and it feels great. And I'm so grateful for those 20 minutes that I get to go jog or run. So I think living in the land of extremes can be really unhealthy. And I have done many extreme things on the trail, but quite frankly, it's not sustainable. And I don't want to live in that place. I just want to be grateful for the you know, times I've had to test my limits and explore endurance, but also like be super grateful for the ability to just go sit on a stump and watch my kids play in a creek and clear my head. And it might be 20 yards, but I call it a hike, you know? So I think, 
I just say own it for hikers and runners. Like if you jog a few steps, if you walk, you know, a quarter mile, like be a hiker, be a runner, own it. Don't feel intimidated. You can always go farther. I think the weakness of a lot of people is not being able to go shorter or slower distances and speeds. Given that you are someone who works to try to get more people outdoors and on trails, what do you think are the biggest barriers to entry or the biggest obstacles that are preventing people or that might prevent people from going trail running or backpacking or hiking or from identifying as a trail runner, calling themselves a trail runner or backpacker or hiker? Well, here's, I think the obstacles are different. Like, I think when it comes to running and trail running, there's intimidation. Like, there's too much spandex, right? And it's much more image driven. And people are like, oh my gosh, if I don't, if I don't have the body, if I don't have the gear, if I don't spend $120 on this ridiculous ultralight running vest, then I'm not a runner. Um, So I think there's like a, a cool factor and an intimidation factor um, and there, there's a lot of still like, you know, bro culture in the like trail running scene. And obviously it doesn't need to be there. And some people and some groups and companies are so, so good about like being inclusive and working against it and saying, you, we don't have to do an ultra marathon on your first trail run. We can do, you know, a 5k and walk some, and that's awesome. And then let's all go drink beer afterwards and have a good time. Um, But I really do think that the companies um, and organizations within the trail running world would be better served to have a more diverse roster of athletes that they're profiling, because that's where a lot of the image comes through. And it is a lot of dudes. And I wish there were more women. And I wish there were more stories of, you know, I didn't start out doing this. Or I had, you know, I had a baby and came back and was doing just a few miles or walking or whatever it is. But in a lot of ways, it doesn't feel accessible. So I think trail running, it's image and intimidation. And then hiking and backpacking, the biggest obstacle I see for people, especially women, is um, is safety. A lot of people fear, feel feel fearful of going out on their own for a hike, for a backpack in a a really rural or remote area, Um, safety, and also just education. Because for a lot of people who didn't grow up, you know, in scouts or going camping, or if that information wasn't handed down to them, that's a hurdle for them to experience the outdoors in that way. So information and safety for backpacking, intimidation, image for trail running. But the good thing is, those are both very overcomable hurdles for just about anyone. You know, if you meet someone who can help you, if you do your research, if you can confront those obstacles with education, experience, information, or just not giving a crap about image, then you're going to be fine and you're going to get to go do it and have a really great time. So the hurdles are there, but they're not huge. So you talk a lot in your book very well about some of the complexities, we might say, problems of celebrities in some of these activities. And yet, I kind of feel like I'm hearing you say, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing if we raised the profile and created some, quote unquote, hiking celebrities. Well, I don't think, I don't want to bring what I call like publicity pollution to trails. Like that is one issue I have where trail runners come and do FKTs and they have like media crews at at road crossings. I feel like that 
infringes on the backcountry experience for traditional hikers and backpackers and families out for a picnic. And some of them, you know, granted, also think it's super cool and want to stand there and get an autograph. And that makes the experience even better for them. But in general, you know, I'm not a big fan of bringing bringing crews and teams and, and media groups. And my gosh, just some awareness would help. Like all these trails have like um, regulations and you're supposed to get filming permits. And so many times there's been trail runners on the trail with like drones and walkie talkies and they don't have any permitting to do it. So just an awareness of where you're at for me is important. But um, that being said, I do think, so first of all, like right now, go U.S. women's soccer. <laughs> like I love watching them in the World Cup and I love what they stand for because as a female, I've been an athlete my entire life and I have been underserved as far as outperforming or equally performing with guys in the industry and getting less publicity, less attention and less sponsorships. And I think the outdoor industry promotes itself as being very progressive. And they're a lot of times tied into conservation, which is huge and so important, but they don't support their female athletes the way that they support their male athletes. And trail running is sexy and they've clearly, you know, tagged on to that in their marketing, but the baseline, the most popular sport, there are so many more hikers than there are trail runners. And for a lot of people, that is a segue that gets them into trail running. Um, so why not support that demographic, which is so much larger? It's a bigger category. And I think, um, you know, it's interesting. We met basically in Crested Butte and there's a family there, a mom and a dad and they have backpacked 9,000 miles with their son, who's 11. I mean, that's inspiring. That's inspiring to me. I have no ambition of doing, you know, a 1,000, 2,000 mile trail alongside my children right now. But man, they do that. And I'm like, we're going to make it five miles today. Like, we can do it. Like, this kid is like all over the US, you know, and with his parents. And I think that is incredibly inspiring as much so as any guy who goes out and wins 10, 100 mile races in a year, you know. So tell that story. And um, I think, yeah, there are so many. Heather Anderson is another example. Man, she's just like, the preeminent dominant long distance through hiker right now. And um, unless you're in the hiking circles, she's, she's not really a well-known name, but last year she did the Appalachian trail, Pacific crest trail and continental divide trail. So just about 9,000 miles in a calendar year, which is just incredible. So tell that story, tell her story. I just want to see like, you know, the trail is, a diverse place. There are a lot of people coming out for a lot of different reasons. And I think the more we can share those stories and tell those stories, then the more people are going to feel like they can step out and feel included on the trail as well. That's very well said. And it really is important. And, you know, bringing this and tying to this to your mission to like, let's just keep getting more folks outside. I mean, I think that that is not some niche fringe notion, right? I mean, every week it, it feels like you can see the new article about doctors are literally starting to prescribe, you know, to patients like go out on a hike. And so I think you are touching on something that is increasingly an issue in modern society. And uh, you know this, but I guess like the rest of us kind of need to catch up and keep thinking about ways to encourage people to go 
just get outside and break down those obstacles and those barriers that might present some friction? You know, for me, the real um, catalyst for me to really dedicate my life and career to trying to get other people outdoors is, you know, in my early 20s, I'm out there trying to figure out what it is I want to do with my life. And I was, you know, an individual who wanted to do something meaningful and I wanted to help people. And I was thinking about careers and, you know, potentially being a teacher um, or a minister or, or a nurse or what is it that I want to do? And what I observed hiking was that all these people were coming to the trail with all these different needs, you know, and some of them needed community and some of them needed solitude and peace and some of them needed a challenge and some of them needed more stillness and some of them needed healing and some of them needed therapy. And like in every single case, no matter what someone needed, they were able to find it on the trail. And there's this really common hiker expression that goes, the trail gives you what you need. And I was just struck by like how true that was case by case, individual by individual. And so at some point I thought, well, man, maybe the best way I can help people is just try to facilitate, you know, try to get them outdoors so that they can then find what they need. And it seems simple. And that's another thing is that when you grow out in the, when you grow up in an outdoor culture or town, you're like, well, obviously you're going to spend time outdoors. But for the majority of American culture, it's not true. Like I grew up in the Southeast and the idea of a woman spending time outdoors by herself hit a lot of, um, you know, criticism. Like I remember I finished the Appalachian Trail, maybe it was my first or second time, but there was a um, columnist from my hometown newspaper that wrote a piece saying I was going to be responsible for other women's death because of my example. Um, so, you know, facing things like that and, and looking at this culture where even if we're active so many times, it's it's in a sports arena and not necessarily a natural environment. Like we do need advocates to say, it's okay to step outside. It's okay to be a beginner. It's okay to address these concerns, fears, stigmas head on and like, let's work through them. And, you know, just for me personally, I think the reason I'm still in this 11 years later and still so engaged is because um, my journey personally, like I've needed different things from the trail at, at different points in my life. And, you know, at 21, feeling independent and self-sufficient was huge. Going for the records for me was such an important part of me feeling equal and empowered as a female in a very male-dominated sport and industry. Um, you know, having kids and going out there, the trail has become just a place where I feel like um, I can be an athlete and a mom. And uh, it slowed me down a lot and allowed me to be more of a naturalist, which I've really appreciated. So I think the fact that it's constantly evolving and that it is accessible and that it can give you what you need at different phases of life is just there's nothing else like it. It is truly where we belong. And when people access it, experience it, and realize it, I think it's positive for individuals and communities um, and our country as a whole. Amen. I want to talk a little bit more specifically about your book. This book, The Pursuit of Endurance, you present a number 
of wonderful characters. And by the way, they are in part wonderful characters because I think you've done an incredibly good job making them wonderful characters or capturing that. So really, this is a really well-written book and I've really enjoyed reading it. If I ask you the question, pick one of these people that you are providing a portrait of, which one happens to spring to mind? Oh, Scott Williamson. Okay. (laughs) By far. I mean, he's like the crown jewel of this book. Like everyone in here, you know, it was a gift to to hear their stories and be able to share their adventures. And they all have so much to offer. And what's interesting is like this book has sort of become a personality profile. Like there's seven characters in there and people read it. And I always like to say, well, who was your favorite character? And different people identify to the different folks in the book. Um, And it's just neat in that way that like, you know, you might not feel, you can take something from everyone in the book, but you might not feel a deep connection to everyone, but there's usually one person who you really see yourself in their story, or you really become inspired by what they've done. So it's neat to see how different people gravitate towards the different characters. And I think that's the value of the book is so much more than my story. Like there's so much wisdom. There's so many miles in there from different people, but Scott Williamson, I mean, buy the book for that chapter. Like, like, I mean, he, for, for a couple reasons, A, just his story and B, because, um, you know, I was given the, the privilege and the responsibility of, of being the first person to really write about Scott in about 15 years. He's very, um, you know, protective with his story. He doesn't um, do the endurance feats that he does or has accomplished for media attention, and he's very wary of it. So I think it was the early 2000s where um, Backpacker did an article on him that he found extremely distasteful, and he pretty much said, like, that's it. Like, I'm never, this is, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not out here to seek the limelight. That was his direct quote. So I'm not going to participate in this anymore, the media side of it. Um, So, but if you've been on the Pacific Crest Trail, that is Scott Williamson's trail. Like if you go hike the PCT, you should know who Scott Williamson is. He's done it more than anyone else. I mean, the number keeps stacking on top of itself, but I think he's done it 15, 16, 17 times. And and, and whole in a lot of parts beyond that. And he's set multiple records on the trail. And he just, he knows it better than anyone else. He spent more time out there. And as far as being uh, a backpacker and um, a mountaineer and someone who has traveled great distances through through desert and through heavy snow, like he's just so talented. And then, so his accomplishments, I think, set him above everyone else in the book, quite frankly. And these are the most accomplished hikers and trail runners out there. And Scott Williamson is at the pinnacle. But his story is just so inspiring. Like he is a high school dropout. He had a very, very difficult childhood with emotional abuse. And he grew up, you know, near the Bay City or near the Bay Area. So very urban, but he would run into this forest park and climb up trees. And that was his safe haven. And and then eventually he... Um, got connected with Boy Scouts and went on a 50-mile backpack of the PCT. And he decided this this is it. So by the time he was 18, he had hiked the PCT. And 
And then he had hiked all three of the long trails, the Appalachian Trail, Continental Divide Trail, and Pacific Crest Trail by the time he was 21. And he was saving up to try to be the first person to hike the Pacific Crest Trail twice in a calendar year. And he was working in a shop that got robbed and he was shot in the face and in the hospital. And, you know, the bullet lodged in his spine and was never taken out. So now he's this victim of extreme violence and trauma. And he heals from that and and then goes through personal loss. Like he loses his best friend in a tragic accident. And so his story, like his story is what I am trying to communicate in this book is like, yes, endurance can be physical, right? Some people manifest endurance by going and doing 50 and 100 mile days and good. But what is really the point of endurance? And Scott Williamson, his resiliency and his you know, optimism and hope for life and his willingness to go back to the trail and just try and be okay with failure. And that, so, okay, his, his accomplishments stand out, his story stands out. But then I think the thing that really sets him apart is, is just his lack of ego. Like he is so comfortable with failing. He is so comfortable. And I think delights in the fact that people may not know who he is or know of his accomplishments. And he truly does it because it makes him happy and he loves it. And, you know, there's nothing else he'd rather do. And so that joy and that sense of endurance and love of endurance and the realization that, yes, it's cool to express it on trail, but it's necessary to express it in our everyday lives. And we are all creatures of endurance and that physical practice of endurance can help us emotionally endure the hardest challenges and obstacles that we may face in our everyday lives. Like he manifests that better than anyone else I know. So to have him in the book, is just, if you can't tell, like I am, um, so, so inspired by who he is and his story and, you know, try to be more like him. And I'm just extremely beyond grateful that he was willing to be included in this project. It's certainly not just true of Scott's story. This, this comes across throughout the book too, but I think an important thing is his and our ability to deal with failure, right? And sort of when we do fail or we don't quite make goals or the rest, how to not be paralyzed, I guess, by that. Yeah, well, I think honestly, like there's other characters in the book that speak very eloquently about that. Um, Heather Anderson talks about it. Andrew Thompson, he, you know, set the trail record on the Appalachian Trail that I then broke, but he had to try four times for it. And, you know, the part I love about his story is not just his resolve, but Every other person in the book, and usually going for these FKTs, they have a uh, support person that's either their spouse or blood related, or they have like an official support team that's being paid, you know. And Andrew Thompson tried for this record four times. He got it on his fourth try, meaning he, he failed three times. And every time he went after it, it was his best friend who helped him. And I just love that because anytime you're telling someone like, hey, I want to go hike 2000 miles in record time, like they're going to look at you like, you know, something's loose in the head. But to have someone support you and love you, who's just a friend of yours time after time after time and give, you know, it's not a few days like these 
these people and this one person who's giving weeks of his time to just support his friend and help him realize a dream. And and so I think it's really beautiful. And it's just this idea that we talk about failure and there's there's this personal failure when you don't make it. And then, um, you know, I know personally just doing these things, if you don't make it, you feel like you've let the people around you down because they've given a lot to your dream and this effort. Um, so to see the individual and then the group resiliency, like people who don't even really necessarily have a dog in the fight, like no one knows Andrew's best friend's name is JB. No one knows who he is. And he gave just as much as Andrew did for those four attempts, which I think is really cool. Um, but, you know, for me personally, I know that one of the driving factors to go back, because I said um, a couple records, two on the Appalachian Trail. The first one was the women's record. And I think, you know, most people would have been content to hike the trail in 57 days and average 38 miles a day and set a women's record. But um, there was a really important mentor in my young life who said, if you never fail, then you haven't set your goals high enough. And, you know, the 57 days, um, came came pretty naturally and I, I knew I had stayed within my comfort limits and I also knew that I had put myself in a box from the beginning saying well I'm just going for a women's record um, and that you know categorization limited my mind limited what my body was able to do and so one of my goals going back and trying for the overall record was you know, even if I burn out, even if I didn't make it, I wasn't going to mentally limit my physical ability. I was going to let my body loose and see what it could do. And so I think you really don't realize your full ability until you fully accept and embrace the possibility of failure. Another notion that I'd love to have you talk a bit about, it's a very impactful two words you use in the book, befriending adversity. I don't know, when I, when I came across that, it stopped me. I'm, I'm used to hearing talk about overcoming adversity, right? But befriending adversity, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what you mean there. Well, I, you know, I think our culture, one thing we're really guilty of is trying to avoid adversity. Like we spend a lot of our lives trying to maintain a false sense of security or comfort. But the truth is we all go through adversity. We all do it. And I, I think, um, you know, the, the incorrect mentality to take when we're facing obstacles and challenges is this isn't fair and why me? And that doesn't serve us well when we're trying to get through those hard times. Um, but if we can look at adversity instead of feeling, um, cheated or wronged or that life has given us something that's unfair or more than we can handle, if we look it in the eyes and say, this is going to make me stronger. Like right now, I don't know if I can keep going. I don't know if I'm going to make it out of this. This feels overwhelming, but I am determined to put one step in front of the other. And if I can get to the other side, I'm going to be better because of it. If we can look at adversity as a gift that is going to refine us into, you know, a stronger, more resilient, more compassionate person, then those hard times feel more bearable. 
um, and more productive and more a natural cycle of life as opposed to why do bad things happen to good people? Because they just do. Um, so yeah, not letting adversity define us, but letting it refine us is an important, an important thought within the book. This is a book titled The Pursuit of Endurance. So I want to talk about drive or internal drive. Can it be learned or is drive this ability to keep going something like an innate trait? Is it something that we can spark in someone else? You've been thinking and writing about this for a while now. Give us some of your thoughts on this. I think that drive, and I think that drive is different than endurance. I think we all we all deal with endurance. Um, drive and motivation is is separate, and I think in a lot of ways it is innate. I think some people are um, more driven and more competitive with themselves and others than other individuals. And, you know, I don't think that it's a trait that necessarily needs to be over glorified because I think there is a real um, beauty and simplicity and grace for people who are content um, in their life and where they are and don't feel the need to excel or compete or um, maximize their potential. They're happy to be who they are and where they are. And I think that's a real admirable trait. But I also, um, you know, it's interesting, for example, doing the trail records, I think I get it from both ends where, you know, the runners are like, (laughs) "Oh, oh, you're just a hiker, you're just hiking it. But the hikers are then like, oh, you're turning the trail into in a race and making it competitive. And, and that's not what it's there for. And, um, you know, I don't, I just don't think competition is inherently a negative thing. Um, I think it's there in a positive way to draw out our best traits. And I, I really don't care for when people try to emotionally regulate the trail experience saying it has to be you know, non-competitive or it has to be a certain speed or it has to be a certain um, pace. I think, you know, your goal for going out and spending time outdoors, whether you're challenging yourself, pushing yourself, or whether you're sitting there meditating should be, well, what can you learn and what can you take back from the experience and how can you um, enjoy it the most in that moment? And that is going to change and it's going to be different for different people. So, Um, so again, I don't think a lack of drive is a negative thing. And I don't think pursuing competitiveness and trying to realize your potential, um, you know, I don't think that's negative either. I think it's really good. And and probably the healthiest people have some balance of the two, um, because drive can be consuming. Right. And I, I, I don't like it when performance defines people's identity. I don't think that's healthy. And I think that's a time where you need to look at people maybe with a little less drive <laughs> and, and uh, you know, try to absorb some of what they have. But for me personally, I will just say I, I've always been driven. I love sports. I love competition. I love trying to see what I can do. To me, that's like a very exciting question or problems. Like, what is the best I can do? Like, that makes me excited to wake up in the morning And on the other hand, um, I do think experiences can unlock drive. 
So my first through hike of the Appalachian Trail which had nothing to do with speed or a record. It took me five months. But when I realized that I could by foot cover over 2,000 miles and during that journey, the type of conversations I had, the people I met, they were so different from me. They opened up so many more options for for life and what life was about. And so getting to the end and realizing I was more capable than I thought and realizing there were more possibilities and potential out there than I than I thought, it was a really empowering experience. Experience. And so I think drive and motivation is both innate, but can also be unlocked through relationships and experiences. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that's just, I think that's simply correct. Because I love what you say about, listen, let's not over glorify drive, especially if it's going to come at the expense of contentment. By the way, I think this is something that favorite author of mine, Henry David Thoreau, He's really wrestling with this question throughout the entirety of Walden. And he says this right up front. Listen, if you are content, if you are truly content with your life, good on you. Like that is a hell of an achievement. But I think for so many folks, there is a either a lack of purpose or a lack of contentment or they feel unfulfilled and I guess that's the thing that, man, that is a fundamentally critically important aspect of, I think, human experience. If folks like that who are feeling unfulfilled or discontent in their current circumstances, how do we move those folks or how can we help those folks change their situation? And I think, you know, you've kind of talked around this. I think that this perhaps goes hand in hand again with your mission of like, I want to get people outside, right? I think you don't want to get people outside just because you think it's nice for people to be away from roofs. You want to get people outside for reasons you've talked well about because you know the power that that can have and the experiences that that will open them up to. So can I ask you to circle back one more round at this question of effective tools or strategies that you found just to help folks remove that friction to change their situation if they're not digging their present circumstances? Yeah. Um, well, and I would just start by cautioning and saying, you know, if you are discontent and you're looking for, for, for fulfillment and, you know, running a certain mileage or winning a certain race, like, you know, as someone who has been accomplished in really big endeavors, I would just say quite bluntly that they don't offer the fulfillment <laughs> that you think they might. Um, they are finite and they are fleeting and they are not going to define or provide, um, you know, a, a sense of fulfillment for the rest of your life. Um, so don't look there. But I think when you talk about contentment and, and being at peace, which I think then allows you to be able to fail and be okay with it. And it allows you to be able to, you know, strive for difficult things, knowing that you're a full person, if it's not realized, 
being outdoors is a huge component of that um, because we belong out there. I think a big search for contentment is belonging and, and potentially community as well. And, you know, it's interesting um, when I was going after the overall record on the Appalachian Trail, I had a mantra and it was two words and it was just, I belong. And, you know, I, I faced a lot of self-doubt and insecurities and even criticisms going up against these elite male trail runners who had set the record in the past. So I would go out and I would train. And every time I was in the forest, every time I was on the trail, you know, from when I first started backpacking, I had always had this sense of, I belong out here. Like as a natural being in a natural setting, this is a place where I've always connected. And so that, you know, throughout the record was this thing I went back to of I belong in this place. Like I belong in an environment that is beautiful and makes me feel beautiful. And that's one thing, you know, on my first hike, I think the biggest gift I got from the trail is, I um, I felt so beautiful when I was backpacking and it was so counterintuitive because I was filthy and dirty and, you know, smelled horrible and had bug bites all over my body. But um, I had never seen myself as a part of nature until I walked through it. And I just remember I was on Road Mountain on the border of North Carolina and Tennessee and I was up there by myself at sunset and I looked around and there were like all these distant ridge lines stacked upon each other. And there is this beautiful evergreen forest and there were wildflowers and there were birds chirping in the tall grass. And I stood there and, and really, you know, I'm a person of faith, but you can look at this spiritually or just straight up biologically when you stand in that place and you think, I am a part of all of this. I am a part of nature. You feel so beautiful when you feel that connection. And I hate coming down the mountain. I wish I could tell you after 15 years that I've built up this, you know, protective barrier to come home and not let insecurity and self-doubt and public portrayal of what women should look like, infiltrate how I feel about myself, but I'm still not at that place. Like I come down and, you know, my work could always be better or my body is not where I want it to be, or I could be more fit. I could be more successful. I could have more likes on social media. All of it just kind of spins. And then you go back to the mountain and then you look at the ridgelines and you look at the forest and you listen to the birds. And you just remember, I am a part of all this and I'm full and I'm whole and I'm grateful. So that, I mean, that, oh my gosh, that feeling, like, don't get me wrong, you know, getting to the end of the Appalachian Trail in 46 days, that, that left me with a, a very impactful feeling of empowerment and equality and being willing to take risk and test my limits. And that has served me so well in my life. But I don't think I've ever had a feeling better than being on that mountain and realizing I am a part of everything I see and feeling connected to it and feeling beautiful. That's what keeps me going back to the woods. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, your contentment 
it should rest in something beyond performance or accomplishment. And I certainly see it existing in the natural world for people to go and claim and experience. Man, it resonates. Like I, I remember studying the book Walden by Thoreau and I really came to see this as something of a response to a popular book out there at the time, uh, in 1848, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, where he's talking about a huge problem in modern society, ironically in the mid-1800s, of the feeling of alienation, right? And you talking here about belonging and the connection, I think this was exactly Thoreau's response 15, 20 years later in Walden, and why he actually, and I think literally, advises those of us, because I think alienation, loneliness, a lack of connection, these are still huge problems today. I don't know if they're worse, any worse or any better than it was in the mid-1800s, but these are obviously things that many folks are still struggling with. And Thoreau was kind of like, go learn the names of all the, the flora and the fauna. Learn trees and plants and if you literally do what see that I realize that sounds stupid saying out loud, but we don't too many of us we don't know the names of these living things around us. Whereas if you do, you go outside. Even I think in many cities, let alone if we're fortunate enough to get out into open and green spaces, and it's like that's an oak. I think in ways, a way to break down a, and I mean this in a very practical, literal way, as I think you do as well, like just getting to know our surroundings better, I think is one of those little instruments to help alleviate that lack of connection, that lack of a sense of belonging. Right. Yeah, I agree. And and I think um, the beauty of it too, is it's this uh, cycle where you know, it's funny you mentioned, I think you mentioned oak tree, but when I graduated from college, I couldn't tell you the difference between an oak tree and a maple tree. I couldn't identify the two. And they're the two most common hardwoods on the East Coast. And that was shameful. Like, I feel like you should not give a college diploma to someone who can't tell you or point out a maple or an oak tree, but I had never been taught and, you know, I also at that point didn't think about um, consumption. I didn't think about conservation. I didn't recycle. Like taking care of the environment around me was not anywhere on my radar because I didn't know it and I hadn't experienced it. And so to go out and live in it and feel a connection and feel a sense of belonging and realize how important um, and essential it is to quality of life. And then to come back from it and want to, you know, not just get people outdoors, but one of the main motivators for helping people get outdoors and have those experiences is that then when you see the value, you want to protect it and you want to preserve it. And so the cycle is so positive to where the trail gives you so, 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 so much. And, and then the trail, when I say the trail, right, it's just the vehicle into the outdoors. Like when you're in nature, um, there's so much positive that can happen. The benefits, again, you mentioned earlier, scientifically, we all know it, we've all felt it, but now they're gathering all this data about how important it is for humans to spend time in a natural setting 
And when we feel it and experience and know it, then it makes us want to take care of it and prioritize our outdoor spaces and, you know, minimize our footprint and our consumer nature. And so I think it's a very, very healthy, positive cycle. And, you know, personally, I'm I'm focused heavily on the engagement because that's where, for me, conservation started. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of benefits that that come with getting people outdoors. You know, the whole point of your podcast, showing people that this is accessible. It's not just about personal health. It's about environmental health as well. Well, Jennifer, I really have appreciated this conversation and it's funny, coming circling back to your book, The Pursuit of Endurance, you were saying people should buy it just for Scott's story, but I would also encourage people to buy it for Warren Doyle's story and for Scott Jurek's story and for anybody interested in the Appalachian Trail and for anybody who doesn't get what the big deal is with the AT Trail or why anybody would bother I, I thought it was really compelling for that and kind of illuminating this world, right? If people are like, oh, that's, why would anybody do that? You're going to get one hell of an answer from this book of yours. So where should people go to find your book? Uh, well, people can buy the book at their, you know, local independent bookstore or online um, through Amazon or Barnes and Noble um, or off my website, which is jenniferfardavis.com. Those come signed if you're interested in that. And then if you're curious about our hiking company, it's Blue Ridge Hiking Company or blueridgehikingco.com online. And we are, as you mentioned, on this Pursuit of Endurance book tour. So um, check us out on social. We're posting our schedule there. It's um, Jen, J-E-N, Far, P-H-A-R-R, Davis on Instagram or Twitter or you can find me at Jennifer Far Davis on Facebook. And we're listing all our all our dates and locations, which we're headed to the Pacific Northwest and then looping all the way back through the country back home to North Carolina. So hopefully we'll meet some of y'all en route. Well, Jennifer, this has been a pleasure. And the next time you are rolling through uh, the Gunnison Valley, uh, I look forward to talking again down the line. Awesome. Thanks. Me too. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Jennifer for the conversation. And you can connect with her at her website, jenniferfardavis.com or her company's website, blueridgehikingco.com. And she's also very easy to find on Facebook and Instagram. And then also don't forget to go check out her book, The Pursuit of Endurance. Thanks also to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you like what you are hearing, we would very much appreciate it if you would leave us a nice little rating or review in iTunes. Please share this episode with your friends or leave us a comment in the show notes to this episode on Blister to let us know what you think. Until next time, keep moving forward and we will talk to you again next week.